Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thanks, Wes. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here this morning. Hope you've had a uh, good start to your new year, first full week of the new year. I know, for, uh, I know it's been a difficult week for some people. We continue to have uh, you know, sicknesses going on. A lot of people are sick right now, whether it's COVID or that nasty flu thing that's going around. And so I know that it's kind of weighty right now. Things might feel a little bit burdensome. And so this morning, you know, we talked last week about this idea about going through a wall, that at times in our lives we go through these times of testing or difficulty or even suffering in some cases. And when we face a wall like this, we want to go around it or we want to go over it. We want to avoid it at all costs. Or when we're in the middle of it, we want to push through it as soon as we can. And I think, you know, for some people, whether it's a sickness that's just kind of getting to you right now or whether it's just the heaviness of what is going on around us, uh, we may be facing a wall this morning. So I just want to start this morning just with saying this. It's, it's okay to be in the wall if you feel like you're in that right now. And what we're told to do in the midst of that is to trust God, to obey God, and, uh, and, to, and have faith and, and to realize that He is with us in the midst of it. And so with that in mind, I just want to we could just take a collective deep breath as we begin this morning, you know, just kind of breathe in, remind ourselves that God has given us life today, and breathe out. And as we breathe out, I want to breathe out a quick prayer for us as we begin this morning. Lord, we are coming to you this morning knowing that you are the God of all hope and the God of all comfort. And we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would give us hope from your word. Lord, that you would comfort us in knowing that you, that you are here with us. You are among us, Lord. We know this. Uh, we know that you promised to be with us. And so we are thankful for your presence here this morning. May we celebrate that. And as we hear from your word, Lord, may we draw hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we begin this morning, as we're diving back into the book of Revelation, a book that I have called a book of hope throughout this series, and so I hope we see, we see that this morning, the encouragement that we have coming from God's Word. Uh, we broke in, and we, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Revelation, and we kind of broke at an awkward place in the sense that we were right in the middle of the seven trumpet judgments, if you remember that. Uh, in fact, we were right between uh, the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, so it's a little bit of an awkward place to break. Um, and we're going to look at the seventh trumpet today, but since it's been a few weeks, I want to give us a little bit of, re- of review, remind us of a, a few things that we've been going through already, in particular in reference to the fact that we're in the middle of a, a series of judgments that we see in the middle of the book of Revelation, right? We saw uh, the first series of judgments, seven judgments, the seven seals, that's one series. We're in the middle of one or ending one today, which are the seven trumpets, which is another series of judgments. And then we're going to see a third series of judgments coming up in a little bit called the seven bowl judgments. And uh, as we've talked about, the judgment part of the book of Revelation is the biggest part of the book in terms of taking up the most space. It's also the part of the book that most people want to avoid. In fact, it's some, probably some of the reason why people avoid the book of Revelation altogether, because not only are these sections really difficult to understand and interpret, they're just difficult to stomach, right? Understanding the seeing the imagery and the meaning behind all of that, it can be really difficult and, and, and uh, really difficult just to stomach the idea of these things that happen, whether it has to do with like famine or disease or war or plagues or death, all those things that are presented to us here in this place in the book. And sometimes I think it's just easier to say, well, you know, when it comes to all these things, God is just going to work it out the way that God's going to work it out, and so I don't need to worry about it, and it'll just happen the way it's going to happen. And look, if that's how you feel, I totally get that sentiment because there's a lot of truth to it. God's going to work it out the way he's going to work it out. There's a lot of truth to that. He is sovereign, and he's going to do it the way he's going to do it. Um, at the same time, I also realize that these things are difficult, and so in some ways it's just easier just to kind of, you know, say, well, it's there, it's, I know it's there, but in some ways uh, maybe we'll just let God handle it in, in the way that he's going to do it. 
But at the same time, it brings the question to mind, why does this book exist then? And why are these 22 chapters here? And in fact, why is there such a big section in the middle of the last book of the Bible that addresses these things in so much detail? I think what it's telling us is that these things are, of course, here for a reason. And there's something that God wants to tell us and communicate to us, even in these very difficult judgment passages. And so we've already been looking at a couple of different reasons why God brings judgment, and we've talked about a couple of those issues. We're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive this morning and talking about a few, ish, uh, a few reasons for why God's judgment activity exists and what it is about the judgment activity and why it's necessary to bring about God's plans and purposes for human history and for uh, his creation. And so as we look at uh, this week's part of Revelation, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 15 and finish the chapter this morning. So if you have your Bibles with us, Scripture will also be up on the monitor for you. But if you have something that you can read from, it's always better because especially in these passages, they get a little thick and we're going to be referring to phrases and that kind of thing that you may want to be able to look back in. So if you've got something uh, that you can look at and reference, that'll be helpful. But we're going to look at this section in particular in answering this question of what God's judgment activity is ultimately pointing to. We're going to see the seventh trumpet judgment and its effect and its response specifically in these verses. And this is a really short passage. There's only like five verses or so that we're going to look at this morning. And I will say this as we begin, is that it's a much more uplifting part of the judgment section maybe than what we might be used to. And so I hope you see a lot of encouragement and hope in this. Um, it's actually a really good uh, passage to ease back into the the series of Revelation after being, in, after being away for a while. And so um, we're going to start here in verse 15, Revelation chapter 11. And it says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead uh, and the time the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All right, so you might notice immediately that in this passage, this trumpet in particular is a little bit different in some ways than the first six that we've seen. One of the first differences that we see from the, is what we just read right there in verse 19. Right, these references to flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. We've learned already in this book that when we see those, that, that combination of reactions or, or, or uh, that combination of, of those different things that are happening, what we're being told then is this is a reference to the final judgment. So this sets our context from the very beginning. This event that is happening, this seventh trumpet, is about the final judgment. It's about a future event that's yet to happen. It's going to happen when Jesus returns and returns with his final judgment during the second coming. Okay, And so we're given the context there from the beginning, and the contextual elements are designed to put us right there so that we know exactly when this is happening and what it's all about. This is the final judgment that will come at the end of the age. 
Notice, though, also another difference we see is that when this trumpet is blown, unlike the other six where once a trumpet is blown, like the focus is on what is happening on the earth, when the seventh trumpet is blown, the focus immediately reveals to be what happens in heaven, what is going on specifically in the throne room of heaven. And as we've seen before, as we've learned so far, when the throne room shows up, when we see a throne room vision, what's being communicated here is God's sovereignty, God's authority, God's plan for redemption. We often see worship and praise that breaks out right in the middle of the throne room. That's the place where God is worshipped by his people. And certainly we actually see all of those things going on in these short verses. And then the main effect of the trumpet is the reaction of the people who are present there around the throne of God, uh, singing and praising God for what he has done. And so we see what the reaction actually takes the form of somewhat of of a praise and worship song. You can imagine like a worship service just kind of erupting right there in the middle of the throne room in response to the seven trumpets. And these phrases, uh, these praises come from what are termed by John as loud voices, which are probably directly the multitudes. If you go back to chapter 5, when the multitudes are, are praising the Lamb who is, who is there, what we see is that the multitudes or the great voice, the loud voice, comes from the multitudes or the myriads of the thousands and thousands of people gathered around the throne. I think we're designed to make that same connection here, or we're called to make that same connection here. And so the loud voices are coming from the multitudes, and then we're told also that the 24 elders are singing around the throne. And so what you've got is a combination of the multitudes of God's people with the 24 elders, which represents, as we've seen already in Revelation, God's people, the totality of God's people around God's throne, praising and worshiping him after this seventh trumpet has been blown. Now, what's significant about this is that in the lines of the song, we actually see specifically why the elders and the multitudes are praising God. It almost functions like a theological narration, telling us why the seventh trumpet and what God has accomplished through the final judgment is so important and so worthy of praise. First, God is praised as the one who was and who is, and we can say who is to come, kind of what we just sung a minute ago, which speaks, of course, to God's eternal nature, that he is the one who is in control of the past, the present, and the future, that it's he alone who oversees all of history and brings his purposes in creation through history. And so what is happening in history at any given time and what is taking place, as chaotic as it may seem to us, is still under God's authority, and it, and it has not defeated his plan. And God's, what God said he is going to do, he is going to do it, and he's going to follow through on it. Now again, think about how important that was for a group of people like the first century church, for instance, realizing as they're facing constant persecution for their faith, And at times it doesn't look like God's in control of anything. I mean, talk about a wall that they were facing. They were in the midst of it. And it's a strong reminder for us as well today. I mean, what kind of comfort or resolve does it give you today to know that God is the one who was and is and is to come? That he is in control of every situation and every place in history. And that those things that happen to us, although they may take us by surprise, never take God by surprise, and they never thwart his plans and promises that he's planned from the very beginning. And this song celebrates and illustrates some of those promises. Secondly, God is praised for bringing his eternal kingdom to earth. As God's people praise God here, they're praising his kingdom as a kingdom that brings nothing less than the renewal of creation, a new heaven, a new earth for eternity that's full of the glory of God and has no evil or sin or death present at all in it. A kingdom where God's character and all of God's blessings are present everywhere you look 
and everywhere you go. This is the promise that we get to at the end of Revelation of a new heaven and a new earth, otherwise known as the eternal state or heaven. Third, God is praised for being victorious by defeating his enemies and everything opposed to his kingdom. The phrase there, the nations raged, is a way of saying that the kingdoms of the world, which are kind of a marriage in some ways of human beings who reject God's rule and then demonic spiritual opposition to God's kingdom, we see that here in Revelation, they're defeated by God's wrath by his judgment. And along with that is the judgment that is uh, everything that is sinful and evil and destroys God cre- God's creation and doesn't belong in God's eternal kingdom. In addition, the defeat of God's enemies is also his victory that's seen in the saving and the redemption and the vindication of God's people who are identified here as those who are the faithful servants, the prophets, and the saints, those who fear God. And finally, the last thing that John sees in this vision happens after the song kind of concludes. John looks up and he sees God's temple, a vision of God's temple that is opened with the Ark of the Covenant in it. Now, both of these, if you're not familiar with these references, both of these are Old Testament references that both represent God's presence among his people. They represented God's presence among his people, specifically in the Old Testament. And so with the Ark of the Covenant, that came first. That happened shortly after the Exodus. That was God's presence among his people in Israel. And then the temple came after that. And the temple and the Ark together then represented the fact that God was present with his people. And so what John sees there at the end in verse 19 with a vision of the ark and a vision of God's temple is really the greatest blessing and the greatest reason to celebrate God is that he, has, he will come again to dwell with his people. This time not just in a building, not just in a box, but the God who is present with us in the person of Jesus Christ for eternity. Now, as we've said, one of the things that's unique about what we're looking at today is that this trumpet is not focused on what we might call the harder things, although there are some references, of course, to ultimate judgment and God destroying his enemy, those kinds of things. This is more focused on kind of what we get to in the end, why it is that judgment has to happen so that we can get to the things that God has promised in the end. And what God has promised in the end is good. Despite what this world may have to go, to go through to get there, despite what history has to go through to get to God's ultimate end, God is bringing this all to a glorious and good end in all of it. And I promised a more deep dive into God's judgment this morning. We're going to do that by talking about at least three reasons that we see from this passage for God's judgment that are highlighted here. And I want to talk about them in terms of the purpose of God's judgments, the promise of God's judgments, and then the calling that comes out of, the, of God's judgment. So let's start with the purpose. You know, recently, over the past, I don't know, six months or so, I've been reading this book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and it's by an author uh, by the name of Carl Truman. And the book is about a lot of things, but the gist of it all is that he's kind of, he traces like the human history of thought all the way from the beginning to the place where we are now. And he talks about how the modern self, uh, how we think about uh, things right now, philosophy that's kind of endemic within our culture and that kind of thing. And the big idea in all of it is how we have arrived in modern culture at, at, at a philosophy that's known as expressive individualism. And expressive individualism is just a big phrase for kind of just describing exactly what it sounds like. What it means is that it's built on the belief that truth and meaning come from the individual, right? And that the ethic of truth is the full expression of the truth that comes from the individual. So instead of truth coming from the outside of the individual, like from God or from community or from a tradition or from the order of creation, we might say, those kinds of things, instead truth and meaning comes from inside the individual. And expressive individualism says that each individual should be able to express their truth and to live their truth to the fullest extent. 
So in, in, from a perspective like this, the greatest truth and the highest ethic happens when each person is living out their own truth, which comes from inside them. And so Truman makes a contrast from a, a biblical perspective between this kind of thinking, it's often called poiesis, with a, a view that's called the mimetic view, which says that truth and meaning comes from outside the individual, like from God or from creation or from tradition. And he says it this way. He says, a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning uh, and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Now, if you're wondering what this kind of discussion has to do with judgment in Revelation, uh, here's the point. Uh, I, I agree with Truman in saying that expressive, that it, as he identifies expressive individualism, it is the predominant view in our culture and our world today, in the sense that we see it all over the place. It's the basis for everything from consumerism to social media engagement to things like ident identity issues. And I think it's so prevalent in some cases that people don't even question it anymore. Right? It's just commonly accepted that truth comes from inside me. Right? I mean, how many times have we heard the phrase, my truth, over and over again in the, common, in, the, in the current world that we live in? Now, there are a myriad of possible problems that come with this kind of thinking. I don't think we have time to cover all of them here this morning. But here's the problem when it comes to specifically judgment and revelation. The problem is that the purpose of God's judgment is to judge and defeat everything that's not glorifying to God right? All that does not represent God in his creation so that he can make it good and he can make it glorifying to himself for eternity. Now, this, of course, is in conflict with expressive individualism because it says that truth and meaning comes from God who is outside the individual. Uh, biblical truth says that God created human beings to find truth and meaning in his design and by his word so that then we can conform ourselves to whatever it is that God reveals to us. Specifically, what God reveals to us is what we know as the biblical narrative or the Bible. And we see this narrative most directly uh, from the very beginning of the Bible in terms of how God created the universe. Three main reasons, at least, why God created the universe. Number one, God created the universe so that it would glorify him and show his character everywhere. Number two, God created the universe so that, we, so that he would have a place to dwell with and have fellowship with the crown of his creation, which are human beings created in his image. And third, God created so that human beings could enjoy the creation and could reflect their creator's image uh, back to one another and to all of creation around them. And so the ultimate goal from the beginning then, even when in creation, is that, is that God would fully reign on the earth and dwell with his creation. And when this happens, his kingdom glorifies him and displays uh, his character as the king. And as human beings, we have the opportunity to dwell with God in unbroken fellowship. And all of that is a part of God's good design. And we, when we enjoy this kingdom, we enjoy this creation that's full of righteousness and justice and peace everywhere. As we think about that, it sounds like this great master design, and it really is. But of course, human beings ruin this design by deciding that we could do it without God. And deciding that we don't want God's design for creation. We don't want a relationship with God. It's not really that important. And the way that we live our lives is the way that we want to live our lives. And this fruit was, sin, it was seen really as the first sin and the fall of creation as a result. Now, it's at this point that many people who have been influenced by the philosophy of expressive individualism, which I'll say it's out there in our culture. It also kind of creeps its way into the church. We see it in a lot of different ways. But what happens is that we have a tough time coming to terms with the concept that God would judge anyone because of what they believe. 
right? Because ultimately, there's a belief that all people are basically good, and in some cases, taken even to the extreme, that all people are basically gods. Because if you can determine your own truth, and if your own truth comes from inside of you, and no one can judge your truth, then you are effectively God of your own world. And even if you get to, and if you even get to a place of God not even being able to judge your truth, of course, you've made yourself God. Now, in this philosophy, the only real sin ultimately is me not living my truth or someone else not allowing me to live my truth as I want to live it, even if that someone else is God. Now, you can see what happens then. Instead of God having the right to judge human beings, judgment itself is the cardinal sin of the expressive individualism religion. God cannot judge me just wanting to be me, and if God does that, He himself must actually be evil. The end result is that everything gets flipped on its head. We judge God instead of God having the right to judge us. And and that's the problem with expressive individualism. That's a problem with a lot of kind of the way that we think in that way because, and it it becomes very deep-seated and resists God's judgment. Now, maybe you are thinking at this point um, that that has a lot to do with The original sin, right, Adam and Eve not trusting God's judgment and instead wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil. And I think you'd be right to make that connection. This has always been at the core of sin. It's always, uh, sin always has this same core to it. It's just dressed up and called different things as it moves throughout history. But in the end, it has its result in casting God and his words away. And it's all fun and games until something like this brushes up against God's judgment, where God has to then remove the falsity from his creation. Now, notice again from the passage today that God's final judgment brings wrath against the nations that rage against him. Those who are identified as the ones who are dead in their sin, those who destroy God's creation are themselves destroyed by God. Now, expressive individualism, philosophies like it, want to believe that all people are good, but the Bible disagrees. Instead, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that none are righteous, not even one. So this is all of us. In reality, I mean, if you think about it, at some level, this is all of us. All of us are the ones who rage and rebel against God's authority. All of us are ones who are dead in our sin. All of us are ones who destroy God's creation. Each of us are guilty of it in in, in our own way. Now, most of us know this to some degree at our core, right? Even if we don't think we are the problem personally, we we know there is brokenness around this world. It's evident everywhere we look. But pride often convinces us that we aren't really a part of that. That's somebody else's problem. That's what somebody else did. But with a little more wisdom and humility, we may realize that we too are a part of all of this that God is judging. So what do we do then? Well, this leads us to the promise of God's judgment. Theologian G.K. Beale says this about the totality of the revelation vision that John sees here in this book. He says, John, and thereby his readers with him, is taken up into heaven in order to see the world from the heavenly perspective. He is given a glimpse behind the scenes of history so that he can see what is really going on in the events of his time and place. He is also transported in vision uh, into the final future of the world so that he can see the present from the perspective of what the final outcome must be in God's ultimate purpose for human history. In other words, as we've said before, uh, this book called Revelation presents us with an entire view of history, specifically an entire view of God's redemptive history. It's almost like as if we were transported above history to see everything from kind of this bird's eye view. We've all heard that phrase, 30,000 foot view before, right? 
Of course, 30,000-foot view refers to a perspective um, that it, it was coined after kind of the perspective that you get when you're flying in an airplane because at the cruising altitude, it's about 30,000 feet. So if you've ever been in an airplane and looked out the window, that's kind of the 30,000-foot view. And you'll notice what you can see is a full landscape in front of you when you do that. You can see as far, you can see for miles and miles, you can see the horizon as far as it'll go, right? You can see the sky and the earth. You can see landmarks that are on the ground, whether they're mountains or trees or or, or, or homes, or buildings, or lakes, or whatever it may be. And with a 30,000-foot view, of course, you have those certain landmarks you can identify. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this before. I do this sometimes when I'm flying back into Phoenix, right? You're trying to identify, like, okay, where am I? Where is my neighborhood? Where is my house? Can I see my house from here? That kind of thing, if you've ever done that. And you do that by identifying certain landmarks. Like, if you see something that's big, you can't really probably see your house. It's too small at that altitude. But you can see certain things, especially as you're kind of starting to land, like maybe a mountain that you recognize, or maybe even a sports arena that you might recognize, or a building that you know that's close to your neighborhood. And from that landmark or from that reference point, then you can try to trace back to where your neighborhood might be. Now, in our view uh, from Revelation, we also see these landmark scenes throughout Scripture or throughout this book. Rather, they, whether they're judgments like we've seen or they're theophanies, but none is more important than what we see in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is the one landmark event on which everything else is a reference point. We've been through this, uh, if you've been with us in this series, and you may remember that this vision is the vision of the slain lamb, who is also the lion of Judah, who is Jesus. And it becomes more than just a landmark in the book of Revelation. It is the reference point for all that God is doing throughout this entire book and all that God is doing behind in his redemptive plan. I want to remind you what this looks like from Revelation chapter 5 when we read through this in verses 5 and 6. Uh, this may remind you. It says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now the promise of judgment then is tried into this one metaphorical image of a lion and a lamb. A lion who is establishing his kingdom in the world, and that same lion who is also the lamb, establishing the kingdom through laying down his life. He all is at once the one who executes judgment, but the one who also takes the judgment of us all upon himself. He is the lion and the lamb, and that is the promise of judgment. That is the, that is the defining reference point throughout this entire book. And so in order to bring creation back to its original design, of course, God has to get all, rid of all of it that pollutes it and destroys it. But as Revelation 11 says, he destroys what destroys his earth, which is a good thing. I mean, who wants to live eternally in a heaven that is still full of sin and evil and sickness and death, right? No one, because that's not really heaven. It's just more of the broken world that we live in right now. What makes the new creation new is that God has removed all of that and prepared it for eternity for us. And it's a lot, and so everything has to be removed. It's a lot like cancer in that way, right? If a surgeon is removing cancer, he has to make sure he gets rid of all of those cancerous cells, right? He doesn't just cut half of them and leave the rest of them in there because that continues to grow. In the same way, the way that God gets rid of sin is totally and completely from his eternal creation. And so then the promise of God's judgment is really twofold. It's the promise of the lion and the promise of the lamb in one person, Jesus, the Savior King. It's the promise that he will judge the earth from all sin and evil and death and that he took that judgment upon himself so that we wouldn't have 
to die in that way. And instead of us being judged as sinners who deserve death, we're rewarded as saints and brought into the kingdom full of every blessing. So when it comes to what these judgment activities do then, they draw a line in the sand between those who reject God's invitation for salvation and relationship and his invitation for admittance into his kingdom and find themselves outside of the kingdom. So the last thing about God's judgment we'll talk about this morning is the calling. The calling of God's judgment. The calling is essentially just the question of how do we respond to this. As this entire book has been, like our, our number one response to it is just faithfulness. Right? As simple as that sounds, that's what the call of this book is. For those who know Jesus, that means it's to follow Jesus more closely and to stake our lives on the fact that he is coming back to fulfill what he has promised he would do. It's to see our present day reality really in light of the future reality. In a lot of ways, we're put right there in that scene uh, as one of the thousands and myriads who are praising God in a future scene, but also to read that into the present and ask ourselves, how does that impact our present reality and how we live now? So we see ourselves as a part of the myriad of people who are singing and celebrating God's final judgment as a redemption celebration. And so we're called now to live as people of the kingdom even right now, today, already citizens of that eternal kingdom so that we can display the character of our king and the promise of his kingdom that is coming. You know, for those who don't know Jesus or haven't trusted Jesus as their savior king, the judgments here paint a pretty clear picture. In the end, to put it simply, it breaks down to which kingdom will you live from. The invitation goes out to everyone to enter the kingdom of God. That invitation won't last forever though. Eventually, every person must choose one kingdom or the other. And that's why we have so much in this book about God's judgment. I think as awful and disturbing as these images are in this book sometimes, and they are that way, God is actually being gracious towards us by presenting uh, these visions to us. They're designed to wake us up. They're designed to shock us kind of out of our spiritual sluggishness or blindness and to remind us of what is really at stake with our faith and what really matters in the end. As human beings, we tend to think that we're a lot smarter than we are, that we're a lot more powerful than we are, and a lot more independent than we are. But biblical wisdom and humility reminds us that none of those things are actually true. We're a lot less wise than we think we are. We're a lot weaker than we think we are, and we're a lot more dependent than we think we are. Of course, you won't hear that in a world where the individual person is his own God, but you'll hear it if you listen to the Bible. And it's for our own good that we would know that we can have an opportunity to lay down our pride so that we can receive the grace and mercy of God. And we ignore these judgment warnings, I think, to our own detriment because they're designed to sharpen our faith and our trust in Jesus as the lion and the lamb. In very striking terms, right, they do what God's word often does. It reveals our hearts. As the saying goes, God's word brings comfort to the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. For those who are comfortable in their sin without God, these words challenge that comfort and push us beyond that. For those who are afflicted in this world, they're designed to bring comfort in the midst of affliction and difficulty. They serve as warnings when we need to awaken our often slumbering and distracted spirits and when we have loved the world too much. They serve as comfort and assurance when we become weary as faithful people in following Jesus as we're looking forward to the eternal kingdom coming one day. Now, these are just a few, there, there, there are really few things I would say that we get clarity on in this world. God's word's pretty clear about judgment. It will happen and it will be decisive. The same Jesus will come back and appear to everyone. 
For those who don't know him, he will appear as their judge. For those who do, he will appear as the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, our King and our Savior. The responses to each of those and the destinies of each of those two reactions couldn't be any different. The question to answer is how will you see Jesus when he returns? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you for your word. Uh, knowing that, uh, Lord, you have a purpose behind what you say and what you reveal to us. And uh, although at times it may be uh, difficult to hear, Lord, we know that in the end, your desire is to provide us with hope, to see your grace and mercy as a gift. And Lord, as we uh, come to you this morning asking that you would fill our hearts and our minds with more of your truth, we ask um, that we would ask truly that question when We see Jesus, who do we see? Do we see him as our judge who is distant from us? Or do we see him as our lion, as our lamb, as the one who is our savior and our king? But we know that um, we're facing a lot of different things in life right now as, as many of us often do throughout life. And we ask that we would draw comfort from knowing that you are the one who was and who is and who is to come that you have planned good even in the midst and the muck of what we have made of this world, even in the brokenness of what this world has become because of our sin, Lord, you have promised that you will redeem it and one day make it new. And Lord, I pray that that would infuse our hope that we would live as people who have a foot in the present, of course, because that's a reality that we live in. We live in the not yet, but at the same time, there is a huge promise that tells us that we are to live in the already to see things from a future perspective and knowing that that's where our true hope rests. And so, Lord, would we be people who live as kingdom people even now, who display the character of Jesus, not just because it's the thing that Christians do, but because it is truly the hope of the world, that people would see all around us, those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus, the character of the Lamb who was slain on our behalf and the hope of the reign of his kingdom. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Well, I encourage you again, uh, as Wes announced earlier, we have a starting point class coming up uh, after second service, and so we want to invite you to join us for that. Even if you haven't signed up, we can still get you in there. Uh, we do have food that we're providing, so let us know as soon as possible, and then we have to just arrange, we have child care available for you as well if you need that. And so just let us know so we make sure we can make those arrangements for you. Uh, you can go back to the um, uh, guest services counter and, and get that all squared away if you want to sign up for that class this afternoon. Uh, We also have the Custers who are our prayer partners uh, today after first service. And so if you need someone to pray with as you leave here this morning, maybe there's something that really moved you today and you need to kind of flesh that out a little bit or have somebody pray for you, or you just have something going on in your your life or a family member's life that you'd like to pray for, they'd be happy to pray for for you and with you as we close up today. And as we leave, uh, we also have prayer cards that are available. If you fill out one of our prayer request cards and drop it in one of the offering stands as you leave, 
this morning. We make sure that it'll get to the right place. We can be praying for you throughout the week and whatever needs that you have um, this coming week. And we consider that an opportunity and a privilege to do that. So hope you all have a, a great afternoon. Enjoy uh, the beautiful weather that looks like it's out there this afternoon. And uh, have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.